My name is Aubrey, and I'm very glad to see you. If you have a copy of the Bible, please turn to our gospel reading, Luke chapter 15, verses starting in verse 11, the, the parable of the prodigal son. We're going to do the first part of the parable this week, the first son, the younger son. Next week, we'll look at the older son. So we're going to look at this parable, this remarkable story, one of Jesus' most famous stories. We're going to look at it in seven movements, if you're one of those people that likes to take notes, okay? Seven movements. First of all, the son's request. Luke chapter 15, verse 11. And Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that's coming to me. Now, you just have to know, or the whole story doesn't work. You have to know that's unheard of. One of the foremost uh, scholars on Middle Eastern culture and the Bible, Kenneth Bailey, in one of his books he wrote, to my knowledge, in all of Middle Eastern literature from ancient times to today, no story has ever been told of a son asking for his inheritance before the father's death. Not a single example of this in all the literature coming out of the Middle East, it is absolutely, utterly, terribly, unconscionably unheard of. It's not just a like weird thing, it's jaw-dropping. So when Jesus starts the story with that, you need to know that everybody around him would have thought that he had just stripped naked and run through the room or something. It was so awkward. And it's not just that the son requests the division of the, his inheritance. He's asking for two things to happen. One, deed the property to me. And two, a second legal move. Give me permission to dispose of my portion of the property. We know that because in verse 13, he converts it. The, his inheritance into cash. We'll come to that in a moment. So this is what you need to know. The clear implication that Jesus' audience would have fully understood was that this was not simply a son kind of feeling out, his sowing his oats, wanting to make his way into the world. This son is saying, absolutely saying to the father, I cannot wait for you to die. I wish you were dead now. This is a profound and deep rejection. It is as strong of a statement of hatred as you could ever make in that culture. And what's even more remarkable is the father's response. That's the second movement. The end of verse 12 says the father. I mean, can you imagine? If, if all that culture were baggage, if you lived in that culture and you saw that go down, you would look to the father and think, I know what's about to happen. <laughs> and it would not be what the father did. The father, it says, simply, unimaginably, divided his property between the two of them. Unimaginable. On so many levels, the father's jeopardizing his own livelihood. The father is giving his son something that no father in that culture would ever have considered doing. And that brings us to the third movement. It starts in verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son turned his share into cash and took a journey into a far country. And there 
he squandered his property in reckless living. Most English Bibles read the younger son gathered all he had. But remember, we're talking about a farmer. We're talking about land. How do you gather land? This verb has a financial sense to it. It means the boy turned his portion of the inheritance into capital that he could carry with him, money. And then it says he squandered his property in reckless living. And then in verse 14, when he had spent everything, a famine, a severe famine arose in the country and he began to be in need. And at this point, you might think that the obvious option is to go back home. But nobody listening to the story would have thought that was an option. Because during this particular period of time in the Middle East among Jews... One of the most shameful things that a Jewish man could ever do is to lose his inheritance to non-Jews. It was such a serious thing that the Jewish people had developed a ritual. They had developed a ceremony to deal with any Jewish man who lost his inheritance to non-Jews. The horror, the shame of that was so overwhelming, they had come up with a particular method for punishing someone who did that. It was called the kazaza. Kazaza. If a Jewish man lost his inheritance to someone who wasn't a Jew, the people in the village would perform this ritual. They would fill clay pots with burned corn and burned nuts, and they would go and mob up and surround the man, they would break the clay pots, and then they would shout, whatever his name is, let's say it's Simeon. Simeon is cut off from this village. And from then on, they would have nothing to do with him. Because land is so precious. If you've read any of the stories in the Old Testament, it takes weeks and weeks to sell land. This dude did it fast, which means he got pennies on the dollar. Land is limited. He's harming not just his family, but the whole future of the village. And so, when this guy demanded the unimaginable from his father, and his father unimaginably gave the son what he asked for, and then his son sold off the land and converted it into cash. And then he left the village. He knew full well what he had done to his father. He knew that he had told his father he hated him. He knew that he had rejected his father. He knew he had shattered their relationship beyond imagining. And he also knew whatever happened, the single worst next step he could ever take would be to lose the inheritance to Gentiles. And that's just exactly what he did. And that's why when he is starving to death, he can't go back home. That's why instead of going home, he does something that he never would have imagined himself doing. He starts feeding pigs. And then even then he's so hungry that he's going to die, he still doesn't go back home. Because he can't go back home. He would rather eat the food the pigs are getting. So verse 15, so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country who sent him into his field to feed pigs and he was longing to be fed with the pods the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. 
And so he is finally in such dire straits, so close to starvation. This brings us to the fourth movement. Even though he knows what's going to happen to him when he gets back home. Verse 17. When he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here from hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Now, everything you think about this story up to this point hinges on the first phrase of verse 17, when he came to himself. It's a very interesting phrase. What does it mean? He came to himself. In the Middle East, where this story was originally told, and where it's been translated into Arabic for almost 2,000 years, I mean, from the time it was told, there have been Christians living in that country who live in that culture. And do you know how they've translated that phrase for almost every single Arabic translation by Christians in the Middle East for almost 2,000 years? He got smart. He thought to himself. Then it occurred to him, or get this, one of the most popular translations, then he took an interest in himself. Not that he repented. Not that he thought of God. He thought very clearly of himself. And the reason I bring this up is that none of these translations see this as the moment of repentance. The Eastern Christian tradition in its translations of the Bible consistently see here the son with the pigs in the pig pen, not repenting, but hatching a manipulative plan. A plan that's entirely focused on his own interest. Ignoring the deep rejection and shame that he had brought to the father and the village. And I think that's the best way to read this. He is not repenting. He doesn't really want to change his ways. He's stubborn. He's addicted to his own economic and personal interests. He's close-minded. He's dogmatic. His heart is hard and it's getting harder and he just wants to eat again. I will solve my own problem. I will, I will apologize so that I can get job training, so that I can become a laborer with a craft, so that I can earn money and pay back what I've lost. My problem is cash flow and starvation. I can manage my life. But those of us listening to the story, reading the story, hearing the story, that's not true. That's not his real problem. Everything this man has came from his father. His problem is that he uses all the gifts he's been given by his father without thinking of his father. His body, which he adorns and uses, which so many are in love with, it came from his father. His possessions, his money, his clothes, his shoes and food and drink, they came from his father. He purchased them with all the capital of the inheritance his father had acquired and protected. In and of themselves, his body, his possessions, these are all good things. But the son uses them for himself. He uses them without thought of the father. And that changes it. His, his body becomes a vehicle of uncontrolled passions. He becomes something completely different than what he expected from his youthful vitality. 
his inheritance, using it without giving thought to his father. It makes him soft. It gives him delusions of greatness. It diverts him and makes him dependent on others. The story of Christianity is the story of our rebellion against God. And the son here shows us the story the Bible tells in vivid color. By taking part in that rebellion, you and I, when we live as if God is not our father, as if everything in our life did not come from him, when we live as if he doesn't matter, when we forget God, when we treat God as a thing to engage with on Sundays, when we think that our hard work at school is what gives us our ability to make a living, when we think all of these things are sourced in ourselves, when we live our life as if God doesn't matter, then we become a part of this story whether you like it or not. And pride, you see, it's the greatest sin. And so maybe you can argue a good case for the injustice of the world made by God and the silliness of miracles and resurrections and virgin births. And maybe you think of Christianity as authoritarian or superstitious, that Christianity is just about taking away your freedom and feeding you fairy tales. Maybe you were raised in a Christian home And you've walked away. And still, everything you have comes from Yahweh, the one true God who created us and this world and everything in it and everything we have comes from this God who is our father, our ability, our technological capacity, our reason, our artistic capacities. But our world takes these gifts and uses them as if God doesn't exist, as if God didn't give them to us, as if God isn't our father. In our society, the rebellion against God has become rebellion against everything, even biology itself. When we take any of God's gifts and use them without God, it always leads us into the far country of loneliness and alienation and emptiness and restlessness. And so what the son really needs, what we all need is to return to the father's love to fellowship with the father. And yet here in the far country, in the pig pen, there is no hint of remorse in him. He doesn't say, man, I've made a big mistake. Man, I've ruined my life. I'm ashamed. I've broken my father's heart. My problem is that I left my father. No, in his mind, his problem is he lost money and he's got a plan to fix it. And his heart is hard and getting harder. And this brings us to the fifth movement. The father's love. Verse 20. And the boy rose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, you might want to underline that in your Bible, a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Now just imagine the son traveling back to the village. He knows what he's going to get to when he gets to. He knows what's going to happen at the village. He's stealing his nerves for the humiliating kazaa ceremony, the painful conversation with his father. He's willing to endure all of that because he's starving. Now imagine 
this particular father, which, by the way, is not based on any father. No father in the Middle East ever does this. It's not imagine a great father and think of God. It's, it's, it's defining the fatherhood of God without relating to any human father. Now, this particular father, this extraordinary, mind-bending, heretofore never imagined father, day after day, waiting, staring down the crowded village street to the road in the distance along which his son disappeared with all of that arrogant, evil, wicked hatred. And the father knows what the village is going to do to him when his son rounds the corner. He knows what's going to happen when his son returns. He knows what's waiting for him. He knows that the village will form a gauntlet of shame and rejection. And so the father hatches this insane plan. He's going to reach the boy before the boy reaches the village. Imagine the scene. It's a densely constructed Middle Eastern village like a typical one. Wealthier families live closer to the center. The village streets were no more than 12 foot apart, just wide enough for a a camel that's loaded down to pass through. Here's the father sitting on a balcony day after day, waiting, watching down the gauntlet, the street that will become the gauntlet of shame. And then the father sees the boy. says in verse 20, while he's still a long way off. Not just a long way from the village, a long way from the father, a long way from home, a long way from becoming what he was made to be. He is still in the far country. And the father takes his own long robes in his hands and he lifts them up and he starts running down the crowded street to welcome this pig-herding, inheritance-wasting, mean, hateful son. And as he does this, he knows full well that he is running the gauntlet. That he's drawing all of the humiliation, all of the shame onto himself. Out of compassion, he brings the kazaa ceremony to himself. All of the anger of the village. All out of compassion, he empties himself. He assumes the form of a servant and he runs to his estranged son. Fathers, grown men in the Middle East, do not run. And so this father does it, knowing that he's taking all of the energy of the village, all of its shock, all of its condemnation, its shame and anger, and he's drawing it onto himself. And then on top of that, when he reaches the boy, he keeps it up. He embraces him. He falls on his neck and kisses him. Only use that phrase one other time in the whole Bible. I hope you can find it one day. Another story like this. And, and the father does not perform this act of costly love in response to the son's repentance. That's the trick. The son is still wrapped up in his arrogance. The son is still full of himself. The son is still up to manipulation. He is still planning to use his dad like a tool. And still the father runs to him. The son hasn't confessed. The son hasn't repented. He's returned to the village. But Jesus said he was a far, a long way off. 
And right when he expected to look up and to see his former friends and neighbors forming a gauntlet to shame and humiliate and ostracize and disown him, instead he sees his father running the gauntlet for him. The one whom he wished was dead. The person he treated so hatefully, the person that he rejected is taking all of the humiliation into himself. His father was taking his place. And now the son, in the face of that, has a choice to make. Will he stick with his arrogant plan to manipulate his dad? Or will he accept the gift of costly grace? Will he insist he's going to work and pay his way and pay off his debts? That brings us to the sixth movement, the son's resurrection. Verse 21. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Stop. The father doesn't interrupt him. He just stops right there. He leaves the whole plan in the gutter. He doesn't go on with the rest of his prepared speech. He doesn't offer the bargain. He doesn't present his plan to pay off his desk. He doesn't ask for food because he's now decided that's not the real issue anymore. He's still starving, but now he realizes why he's starving and why this ache is inside of him. His heart breaks and he sees and feels and admits the real issue. He declares that he has sinned and he's unworthy to be called a son. And that's it. Do you see? Do you see why suddenly we find this arrogant, lazy, foolish, sinful boy humbling himself, not with a plan, but with repentance? Do you see why there's no more talk of money? Do you see why he suddenly surrenders his plan to save himself? It's because he's finally admitted that he's totally lost. And he lets the father find him. See, that's the key. The first two parables in this passage, the coin didn't get found by, the coin didn't find itself. And the sheep didn't find himself. And the prodigal son surely doesn't find himself. With the coin and the sheep and with the prodigal son, it takes an expensive amount of effort and love to find that which was lost. It's because of the father's costly demonstration of self-emptying love and forgiveness. The father's self-sacrificing love outstripped the son's pride and arrogance and self-sufficiency. And so the son surrendered all his plans to solve his own problem. You see, the father does not pour out his costly love as repayment for repentance. God doesn't wait to send the son to die on the cross for your repentance. The father doesn't take all of the son's humiliation onto himself by running through the village and offering reconciliation because the son finally decided to be right with the father. The father, just like Jesus, looked at this boy while he was still a long way off. Romans chapter 5 verse 8. But God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When the son makes his long journey back home, he's there rounding the bend on the edge of the village a long way off. As lost as he's ever been. 
And still the father shows his love and runs to the son. And that's what brings the son home. We are sinners. We have used our freedom. God gave us the freedom to live apart from him, to forget him, to treat him as blasé, to, to hate him, to feel like his boundaries are holding us back. We've taken the freedom that he gives us and he lets us take it. He lets us reject him. He lets us act like his will for us is harming us. He lets us choose to leave him. And we end up bound up in our freedom. Bound through our freedom to our homelessness, our homesickness. And so we have to amuse ourselves. And we end up bound to our urges and we have to satisfy them. That's what freedom looks like outside the Father's house. It's bondage to have to do this, to have to do that, to be under a spell, to be compelled to pursue the paths we've chosen. We end up walking in these invisible chains and we're always going to be subject to one master or another, either to God, and then we will be in the Father's house, possessing the freedom of a child of the king or we will subject we will be subjected to our urges ourselves subjected to our dependence on others our fears our worries our, our addiction to money or approval the way home Augustine said God made us for himself and our hearts are restless until they rest in him the way home is to accept being found by the costly love of God. And that brings us to the seventh and final moment, the party. When the son accepts the father's costly sacrificial love, when he accepts the father's lavish gift of taking his place in order to be reconciled with him, in order to tell the whole village, this boy is off limits to your shame. When the father pays the price to do that, when the son accepts that, when he accepts that he's been found by the father's lavish gift of love and forgiveness, a whole new world opens up that can only be described by the language Language of resurrection. My son was dead and now he's alive. He was lost and he's found. And they began to celebrate. And the son finally becomes what he was made to be all along a child of the king, wearing the best robe. You know who would have owned the best robe? The father. Go get the best robe in the house. It was not in the youngest son's wardrobe. He gives him his own robe. And ring and shoes and the whole village is invited to celebrate because a calf is way more than enough to feed a family. A calf feeds the village. Everybody's invited to do what? To celebrate instead of kazaza. Professional musicians are brought in. The fatted calf is killed and eaten. Imagine the feast. Imagine the banquet. This celebration of the father's successful effort at creating reconciliation and the community gathering to participate in it. Can you imagine the joy? Instead of the kazaza ceremony, it's the party celebrating. 
Now remember, in Luke's Gospels, meals are important. I mean, Jesus eats his way, right? Right through the Gospel of Luke. From the great feast in the house of Levi in chapter 5 to the dinner party with Simeon the the Pharisee in chapter 7 and the master returning to the wedding banquet in chapter 12 and the parable of the great feast in chapter 14. And then in this chapter alone, there's three meals. There's three parties. And of course, after his resurrection in chapter 24, the meal he has with his followers on the road to Emmaus but by far of all the meals of all the banquets in Luke's gospel the greatest one by far is the last supper in chapter 22 this sacred feast that Jesus gave us this meal we are about to experience ourselves and all of these stories are told so that you will know what you do on Sunday So that you would know what this meal is about. This celebration of the Father's love. This unbelievable love that saw you while you were far off. Dead in your sin. Before you ever even had a thought of coming home to the Father. While you were still up to no good. And he runs the gauntlet in your place. And takes your shame to deliver you from shame. To deliver you from condemnation. To deliver you from all of this. Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Galatians 2, 20, the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's what this meal is. That's what we do every Sunday. We are celebrating what God has done for us. We were lost and he found us. We were dead in our sins and he made us alive and he forgave us. And we come to this table every week unimaginably that our father who has a cattle on a thousand kills keeps slaughtering them for us week after week after week so that we can come to the party remembering our resurrection from the dead in the past anticipating that we will be resurrected from the dead in the future and remembering that when we've wandered throughout the week he still kills the calf and he still waits for us to be found If you've not given your love and loyalty to Jesus, I hope you will. The way home is to accept being found by the Father. Let's pray.